So I lost immigration, housing, job. <laughs> it generally was a nosedive for me when this started. I just felt uncertain. Well, COVID, COVID. Hello guys and welcome to this first episode of Brain, the podcast about the science behind our thoughts and emotions. My name is Feti Benaisa. Remember the times when we could shake hands, rub our eyes when we're tired, open doors and touch buttons, all with minimal to no thought? Well, those times seem to be over. Because all of a sudden we had to start using up more of our brain energy thinking about things that we didn't need to think much about before for fear of catching or spreading coronavirus. That in itself can be overwhelming and cause a lot of stress and anxiety, let alone the uncertainty that's come with it, the isolation, the fear of death or losing a loved one. All of that has had a toll on our mental health and studies are being carried out to measure that impact. But according to the World Health Organization, the psychological impacts of COVID-19 to date are elevated rates of stress and anxiety, as well as a rise in depression and loneliness. It's truly a parallel pandemic, an invisible pandemic. And this invisibility is not new when it comes to mental health. It's probably one of the reasons why mental health issues remain a bit ambiguous and many people are reluctant to talk about them. So I feel like now is a good opportunity to try to um, demystify mental health and learn more about the science behind our emotions so that hopefully we start thinking about it more as a tangible thing and like with physical health, seek help when we need it. And that's what this episode is all about. I spoke to experts in different areas, including neuroscience and psychotherapy. So you will hear some fascinating things about the human brain. And just a wee disclaimer, um, the information here is purely educational and does not amount to professional advice. So please obtain specialist advice if you need help with any mental health issues. Before speaking to the experts, I had an open and honest chat about mental health with two of my journalist friends here in London, Mariama and Luella. Mariama is from Sierra Leone and Luella is British Somali. It was actually our first virtual get together since lockdown and it was great to catch up. When I asked you about a Somali, good Somali place, I still haven't tried. Oh God, like, yeah, I'll take you guys. I'll take you guys. There's a place called Savannah. That's Luella, and we still haven't made it to that Savannah place. Um, hopefully, we will at some point uh, before there's another lockdown. God forbid. Anyway, we didn't just talk about food. We we all had so many things to say about our mental health. Honestly, it's just wild i mean it's so funny when you asked through this talk i was like i think i'm the prime chief uh, chief person for this because i've literally had like 25 mental breakdowns this is mariama i lost count but if i was counting bruh like it's all over the place um was it hard in the beginning is it still hard so before covid hit what i said was i'm exhausted i'm burnt out i had burnout because for about a year and a half i'd been working non-stop no vacations anything like a dog like nine to five school dissertation research full-time journalist and producer so i was like okay april's coming up i'm gonna go to canada for two weeks and just relax and party my sister's 30th birthday was coming up and we were doing this huge family plan like dirty 30 
COVID hits. Canada closes its borders. I spent like a few days stressing and having breakdowns as if they'll still let me in. Then I'm like, finally, I'll suck it up and go to Sierra Leone and try not to die. Then Sierra Leone closes its borders to citizens and everyone. My legal stay here, my legal permit to live in the UK was expiring April 6th. And I was sitting there March 20th going, what, what am I gonna do? Where am I gonna go? Uh, I, I remember that, I do. COVID-19 has brought a whole new level of stress and worries, but we all experience stress in different ways throughout our lives, whether it's during exams or job interviews. But obviously stress can become an issue. But before we go into that, let's learn a little bit about the basics of brain function. The brain, it's, it's an organ just like your heart, lungs. So a cluster of different cells and Different parts of it serve specific functions. Sherrod Haynes, a researcher in neuroscience based in New York. When you zoom in to the level of individual brain cells, which we call neurons, and how they communicate, they actually communicate with a mix of electricity and chemicals, neurotransmitters. I'm sure you've heard of dopamine or serotonin, et cetera. So those two things together are necessary and crucial parts of the communication. And the way that I think of it, it's like you are at, let's say, you know, a football stadium. And, you know, it's a big arena, it's packed. You know, this is pre, pre-COVID. <laughs> uh, it's very packed and people are cheering and all of that. The question is, we're trying to figure out who is the winning team. I could drop a microphone into the center of this arena and just listen. Where is the cheers coming from? Usually that's going to be the side that is winning or they could be severely losing, but let's just say they're cheering so you can detect, oh, wow, I hear noise on this one side, but I don't hear anything on this side. That is a way that you can start to discern, let's say in this example, the noise that you're hearing is the electrical events. So you can detect based off of the transport of electricity where the neurons are talking, what's the direction of travel, as well as a little bit of what they're saying. Interesting. So um, in terms of stress, so let's say I'm stressed, my heart starts racing, I'm probably sweating. Depending on the situation, I might be shaken as well. So what is happening in, in the brain and the body? So our bodies are, uh, you know, it's beautifully designed, remarkably intelligent. And the body cares about efficiency. So in order to get things to be done as efficient as possible, we have specific, well-described programs. And so we have these emotional programs of which the fight or flight system is one. And it's a multi-organ system because it involves your brain, it involves your pituitary gland, it involves your hypothalamus, um, which are all different distinct parts of the brain and central nervous system. Um, and then it involves individual organs, your heart, lungs, blood vessels, etc. That's one of the emotional programs. So it starts in this area called the hypothalamus. So that part receives input. Oh wait, something's going on, we need to alert. So then from there, there are certain specialized cells there that secrete a chemical that then goes to the pituitary gland. All of this is happening in the course of seconds. And the pituitary gland 
the chemicals that are released in this site go to the rest of the body. Um, and so then in the pituitary gland, there are actual hormones like they get sent throughout the entire body. And in a case of stress, the one that you've probably heard of is cortisol, which gets activated at the level of your adrenal glands, which sit right above your kidneys. Now that process, that's sort of like a long loop and that one could take hours. But the idea is that it's gonna change your metabolism Gonna, it's going to regulate where the blood flow needs to go and shunt it away from areas that don't need it. What happens when, say, for example, you're milling about doing your thing and you see a rattlesnake? That, that's going to be information coming through your eyes. How does it get to your brain? For hundreds of years, people have been studying the amygdala. The amygdala is a small almond-shaped section at the base of the brain, which seems instrumental in our understanding of emotions. It processes fear and is associated with the fight or flight response. So the amygdala contains an organization that's very similar and it actually represents almost like the entire brain pushed into one little piece. So it acts like a brain in and of itself. It's constantly receiving information from our sensory experiences. So things that you see, things that you hear. And that part has been fine-tune over the course of evolution that when information comes in that looks like a snake, you need to run. So this part has very strong connections to the parts that control your breathing, your heart rate, your skin. And so that's, so when you experience, let's say a panic attack or anxiety, the amygdala has become activated and the amygdala got activated by what? you seeing something. Sometimes you see absolutely nothing at all, but really what you see, what I'm sorry, what happens is a thought. A thought triggers that. So then, and then at some point for some folks, this area, the amygdala just goes rogue and it does its own thing independent of any input. That's when the stress response becomes problematic. That gets directly to the source of, of my research. Finding when does that occur? What I found, which is very surprising, is that there's a very small, dense, but small population of neurons in our brain that pretty much control everything from beginning to end of whether you're going to enter a depressive state. Their role is to uh, what we call threat monitoring. So they scan the environment for anything that reminds either in your, in your past or predictive of your future of a threat. That threat isn't like, uh, it, maybe at one point it was well-tuned to be, you know, a bear chasing you, but at this point it can be an overbearing boss. Coronavirus, being outside, all of a sudden physical proximity is a threat. All of these things turn this area hyperactive. And so what we see as a response is PTSD-like symptoms, anxiety-like symptoms, depressive-like symptoms. Um, so this area is associated with the amygdala um, and it has connections to areas such as your prefrontal cortex where you can make executive decisions um, and your hippocampus that remembers very rich information about where you've been, how people reacted and behaved in specific locations geographically but also emotionally. Um, so it, it's receiving this information all the time and for many people uh, you know, you go your whole life without really having that area kind of 
inspiring. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it, it can when these events happen externally um, and then it undergoes this rapid transformation. Another issue that millions have experienced due to lockdown measures is the feeling of isolation and loneliness, which has a huge impact on mental health. And this is something that I personally struggled with even before lockdown. Um, so basically, I'm from Algeria. My family still lives there and I've lived in different countries before moving to London for work a year and a half ago. Uh, and since I moved here, I often felt lonely. I just felt consumed by the working life and everybody seemed to be the same. I felt isolated, often depressed. I suffered from a lot of anxiety and self-doubt. I was like, okay, I'm gonna focus on my work and do my thing and I don't really care about being surrounded. But it turned out that I needed to be surrounded. I'm not that kind of person, you know, and, and probably nobody is. Honestly, I think the way Western culture is, a lot of people are, it's a very individualistic culture. We come from very communal cultures, you know? It's hard, it's hard, honestly. I, when I moved here, had family here, had friends here, went to school here, um, developed a network here, had a boyfriend and still was lonely. I'd still be lonely from time to time, you know, so... London, London is quite a lonely city sometimes because people are so within their own... There are obviously a lot of people willing to sort of get to know people and things like that, but because of such the hustle and bustle of working life, it's a working city and people are always sort of busy with their errands and it can be a lonely city, even for people who are from here. You can find times where you're like, I've got so many friends, but I haven't had the time. I haven't seen another person that isn't yeah. my colleague for like three weeks, four weeks. So it can get very um, mm. lonely and also very overwhelming, especially when you don't have sort of an escape from work. You find, I find that when you work such long hours, you know, you leave before people have woken up, you come home when everyone's asleep or, and it's such a, I don't know, you yeah. feel so physically alone because socially we have access to so many people and, you can send so many people so many different messages, but it's not the same as being in a physical presence of someone and talking to them and actually, you know, like even now, just talking to you guys through video, it, it feels so much closer than a text. Of course, loneliness is a feeling that anyone can experience at some point in their life, but it's really the chronic feeling of loneliness that can have a serious impact on our mental health. I was reading the other day an article about uh, loneliness, which made me freak out, to be honest. Um, so the study was conducted on mice by a research team at the University of Philadelphia. And what they did is they, they raised a number of mice in a group. And when they reached adulthood, they put each one of them in an individual cage away from other mice. And what they found is that the overall size of brain cells or neurons in the isolated mice shrunk by about 20% after a month of isolation. And this is not necessarily true for humans, but it makes total sense, right? That loneliness has an impact on our brains. And there's even some studies on humans that found loneliness to be associated with an increased risk of dementia. Okay, this whole thing about loneliness sounds very scary, but the good news is healthy social interaction can do wonders. And our brains are great at bouncing back. And I think we can all relate to when lockdown measures were eased, how good it felt to finally be able to go out and physically reconnect with friends and colleagues. 
There's something powerful about genuine human connection. Um, during our chat, Mariama told me how after moving places several times during lockdown, she finally felt like home when she moved in with her relatives here in London. Literally, like I tell everyone, she's like my cousin. So I just asked them, I was like, can I move in with you? And they're like, yeah, of course. So I've moved in here and I couldn't be happier, especially because with Ramadan, living with like Muslim family members, you wake up together, you have suhoor together, you yeah. fast together, you have the same lifestyle. Yeah. yeah, they're from my country, speak the same language. Like, I feel like I'm home, basically. I feel like I'm with my mother and my sisters, you know, so... I mean, that was the time when my mental health started to come down um, and like as in come back to sanity and healthier and happiness and everything. And like my life started making sense again. My skin got better, my body, my eating, everything just was like healing slowly. The mind and the body are deeply connected and one is affected by the other. You can even say they are one. Stress and anxiety in particular can quickly manifest in physical symptoms. During lockdown, I suffered from a lot of anxiety and I felt it affecting my heart rate and blood pressure so much that I started having sort of throbbing pain at the back of my head. Things that knock on mental health will very often impact on physical health and, and vice versa. Anya Borisova, a medical doctor in the NHS, that's the UK National Health Service. The evidence that we have would be that chronic stress and, and chronic anxiety um, will be associated with health problems that are really varied. So things like heart disease, uh, it can increase your... Uh, so chronic stress is associated with increased risk of strokes. It can affect your body's response to infections. It isn't as straightforward as that you know, stress is going to be bad for our immune systems. And if you're stressed, you're going to get really sick and there's nothing that you can do about it. But there is certainly evidence to suggest that there's an interaction and there's an interplay between between stress and anxiety and your immune system. So one of the reactions that our body has to stress uh, slash anxiety is the release of this hormone called cortisol from our adrenal glands. Cortisol can communicate with so many cells in our body, including our immune system. Oftentimes, the stress and anxiety affect our physical health and we start worrying about it, which exacerbates the stress that we're already feeling. And it's like a vicious cycle. And with coronavirus, a lot of people not only worry about getting the virus, but also giving it to people around them, especially the vulnerable. I was losing the concept of time because I'm, I'm kind of in the lockdown mentality, but I'm also not because I'm still working. And so you, were, you were still working from the office? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still working in the office. Obviously, we were taking cabs in at first, um, there and back. But as, it, as things sort of got worse, my dad started driving me to and from work, which was helpful because then I didn't have to worry about whose car I was in or if I was going to, you know, get sick. Because obviously, I'm the only person in my house who is working right now. Everyone else is staying at home. And because I have an aunt who lives with us and she's 70 so and there's that pressure of just she's 70 and she's asthmatic so it's just so much pressure on me of just not getting sick like sick or making sure I was okay and I wasn't getting anybody sick and then I get sick anyway but just not from COVID. Um, I spent two days in hospital because I basically had severe pain on my the left side of my stomach all the way down to my left through my left leg and it was just excruciating pain and I had to go to the hospital. They found something called a fibroid in my stomach. 
in three months time I have another appointment to see if it's grown or if it's painful and if so then um then they'll remove it through keyhole surgery yeah so that was that was a really painful time I had no family with me in the hospital I mean I can't say enough how how sorry I am that you that you went through all of that I feel like such a cow complaining about all my useless not even horrible at all hearing all of this I want to say the same thing honestly what you said just makes me feel like um I'm complaining about nothing guys don't don't it's it's literally everything everything everyone goes through you shouldn't feel like you compare everyone's you know we all have our own things that are traumatic in our lives or things that we go through that shape us According to a WHO report, nearly two-thirds of people with a known mental disorder never seek help from a health professional, and that's even when treatment is available. And one of the main reasons for that is the social stigma around mental health, and I think a lot of it is due to the conditioning that we're subject to, uh, especially as men, I think we're more prone to that. There's this social conditioning around the idea of masculinity, it's less about vulnerability and more about prowess and being tough you know you're a man you're not supposed to cry or get emotional and also from a personal experience uh, being brought up in a conservative society in rural Algeria the concept of having mental health issues was almost non-existent because there's there's this underlying belief that if you're religious if you belong to a faith and you have a faith um, you're not supposed to have worries or feel depressed And this conditioning remained in my subconscious, I guess, for a long time because I used to beat myself up a lot for feeling stressed or anxious and kept telling myself what's wrong with me or I shouldn't feel like that. And it wasn't until recently when I started educating myself more about mental health and learning about the science behind it that I was like, hold on a sec, this is not just an abstract feeling that that I shouldn't be experiencing but it's literally a biological response to the stresses of life and it's natural. And interestingly, I was doing some research online and I came across the work of Jin Lali. She's a solution-focused psychotherapist based in Edinburgh and her approach to eliminating anxiety and stress from people's lives is based on getting them to understand brain function. Uh, I've been doing that for a good few years now and I really enjoy it seeing the change that can occur in people's lives when they get control of their thoughts and feelings. And why this emphasis on learning about the brain? It's from a personal level as well. So whenever people used to talk to me about meditation or yoga, I would say, yep, sounds good. But what is the science behind it? Tell me, tell me the background. I like facts. I like figures. I like stats. So I want to have something a bit more meaty than just, oh, it's really good. You know, it's really good. You should try it. So it's always about why. Um, so I like the, the brain science behind it. And this also comes from my previous career as well. I used to be an optometrist and uh, all of that is based in human anatomy and uh, a study of the brain and visual function. So it, I felt it was just a, an extension of that, really. What is it in, in the neuroscience, which kind of information in neuroscience that you think people need to know in order to kind of understand more their mental health and therefore start addressing it if they have issues? 
I think people need to understand that this um, can happen to all of us. We've all got the same brain. Everybody's heard of the fight or flight response, right? And that's just an evolutionary survival response. So I think that is the main thing people need to hear that we can all go into that fight or flight response. It's whether you allow that response to consume you over long periods of time that can lead to things like anxiety and depression, or whether you can learn to say, well, no, actually, I'm not really coming from the right part of my brain. I'm going into survival mode when really I need to allow my intelligence to take over and rationalize this now and make be more objective about what is going on now does so, that answer your question yeah um I, I just have a follow-up question about obviously there is a lot of stigma around mental health even though i think we've come a long way um, and now more and more people are talking about it more openly personally i used to have this uh stigma because I didn't really understand that this, as you said, is a problem that anyone can go through. For example, when you're, you have a flu, it's a, it's a problem. It's a virus that gets into your body and there's this whole immune response to it. So did you find that learning more about the brain helps break this stigma around mental health and actually realize that this is something, this is a bodily thing that's happening? Yeah, when I've done an explanation of brain function to people, I've had some people literally break down in tears to say, oh, so I'm quite normal. Like the way you've explained it, no one's ever explained it like that before. So I will say to people that the fight or flight or freeze, freeze response, there's three, fight or flight or freeze. Fight is anger, flight is anxiety, and freeze is depression. That's all it is. And if you've ever felt angry or anxious or depressed, well done, your brain is working just fine. Because that is the fight or flight or freeze response we all have. So if you've ever felt any of those feelings, you're doing fine. That's a good survival response of your brain. All that's happening is you're letting those feelings prolong and consume you. And, and that's where we need to get the balance back. So definitely this stigma around mental health, you're quite right, Fetty, going, you know, we go to the doctor if we've got a cold or a flu or we've hurt our leg, but the brain remains mysterious. And people still, it's got that stigma of, you know, hysteria over the generations. Someone was hysterical or had a nervous disposition. It's seen still as a weakness and something you should be able to get better yourself. And you can, and that's what therapy is. But also, I will always say to people, if you need to be on medication also, because it's now combined maybe with a chemical imbalance in your body, that's fine too, uh, as well. So I, I agree with you. You know, we go to the, our GP about anything physical, but we remain reluctant to talk about our mental health. And I see that changing very quickly over the last few years. Um, but I will say awareness isn't enough and we need a little bit more action. And in terms of taking the steps to address any mental health issues, because sometimes maybe we want to start with uh, some sort of self-help, maybe do some more exercise or um, mindfulness and yoga. Can this be enough or is it always necessary to go and see a therapist? It can be enough. We're, we're all very different. So it can be enough. And actually self-care and, and you know, reading and just being aware and, and trying yoga and mindfulness is a really good starting point. 
because there's also different levels of mental illness. So there's being, a, from one end of the scale, there's being a little bit annoyed about something. So you're annoyed about something, it's annoyed you, you're a bit angry. And at the other end of the scale, there's serious psychiatric issues like schizophrenia yeah, and bipolar disorders. But there's a huge space in the middle for generalized anxiety, phobias, clinical depression. And so what that means is the treatment has to be tailor-made as well. So somebody who has got serious mental health issues might not get as much from yoga in the beginning as someone who is just a little bit annoyed and a little bit stressed at work. Yeah. So it has to be a very tailor-made approach, but a, there is a starting point and what you described just there is a really good starting point. Start with self-help. Start with that. If that isn't working, if you're not managing, then maybe it's time to, to get more help. And it's going back to your metaphor of, of getting the flu. We do that as well, don't we? we? We try a little bit of hot lemon and honey at home. Yeah, we exactly. might try something over the counter a, a little bit. And then if it's not shifting, we're like, all oh, right, I need to go and see my doctor now for something a bit stronger. Learning about the brain truly changed my perspective around mental health. I started talking about it to people around me. And for the first time in my life, I spoke to my doctor about my struggle with anxiety. And he referred me to a local mental health professional. We're still in the initial stages of figuring out what kind of therapy is best for me. But just the fact of taking that step is liberating. So you're listening, do the yoga, do the mindfulness, pray, read, talk to someone, go see a therapist if you need to. Do whatever you gotta do to take care of that brain. It doesn't make you weak, it just makes you human. All right, guys, that's all for this episode of Brain. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you've enjoyed it and catch you later in another Brain podcast.